Good morning again. That one was a little, that was, that hurt my feelings a little bit. That was so quiet. Thank you. Thank you. My goodness. How you doing? <laughs> I have a little head cold, so if I sound, I'm on day quote right now, so I don't know. I don't know how it's going to be. Um, what if, what if there are ultimately only two groups of people in the church? Those that believe the gospel and those that don't. And what if false teachers weren't dangerous because we don't have enough trained theologians or pastors or, um, you know, not a, not enough of us went to seminary? What if they were dangerous because there are people that don't believe the gospel? What if that's what makes false teaching so dangerous? Not whether or not we have all these trained, which doesn't mean much anyway, theologians, but because there are people at all times in the church that don't believe the gospel. What if that's what makes false teaching so dangerous for us? And when I say don't believe the gospel, you might think I mean those that haven't prayed the prayer to be saved versus those who have. I don't mean that. I mean, as we sit here this morning, there are those in this room right now who believe the gospel, and there are those in this room right now who don't. And what if that was the case every second of our lives? What would we do? How would we fight that we need to become people that cannot be enticed by what is not the gospel. No matter who or where the enticement would come from. And what Peter's letter shockingly reveals to us is that most of the enticement away from the gospel is going to come from among us. It's going to come from inside the church. You can see all kinds of seminars on the dangers of cults and false religions. You'll see very few on why it is that false teaching is so dangerous. Peter makes a transition in the second part of verse 10 that begins a separate section of his argument here, which is going to make up the latter part of chapter 2 of Second Peter, where we are this morning. He told us that false teachers would always be troubling the church, and he pronounced condemnation on them for doing so. Then in the first part of verse 10, he began to get more specific, introducing a group of people to whom God's condemnation especially applied, the false teachers that were troubling the churches to whom he was writing. There are two groups of people in chapter 2. The whole letter, there are two groups of people. Those that are false teachers and those that might be listening to them. And the reason that false teachers are so dangerous is because false teachers teach, they speak. And if they're always present, if they'll always arise among us, as he says, then we are always in danger of hearing them, of being pulled away. That's what's driving Peter in this text. The false teachers were creatures of their own desires, driven by their sensuality and enticed those who were not grounded in the gospel to follow their teachings. Beloved, don't ever leave the gospel. Don't ever 
leave the gospel. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word? Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in the second sentence of verse 10, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that by your word this morning you would remind us to pay much closer attention to the gospel that we've heard to the one thing that saves, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we ever escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Father, forgive me for drifting. Enable me by Your Spirit to preach the Gospel and enable everyone present to hear and believe it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask this. Amen. You may be seated. They, in the second part of verse 10, refers to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These are the false teachers he's warning them about. They indulge their fleshly desires. They despise the authority God's Word has over them, and they change it, therefore, to suit their own desires. And they're bold and willful about it, Peter says. That is their unashamedly arrogant about doing this. Peter says they don't even blink when they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now the context of Second Peter and Jude, which we'll study when we're done with Second Peter, God willing, indicate that the glorious ones here are fallen angels. These are fallen angelic beings, what are now called demons to us. In Jude 8 and 9, you don't have to turn there, but Jude identifies the devil as one of these glorious ones who contended at one time with the archangel Michael, how are fallen angels glorious? Well, God created them. 
They were the first beings that God created. And though a third of them are now fallen, they still retain His craftsmanship. They are still amazingly made by Him. And even though the angels who did not rebel are greater in might and power than these measly false teachers are, those angels that are not fallen don't even blaspheme the ones that are fallen before the Lord. So in some way, these false teachers blasphemed fallen angels. Either they spoke irreverently about them or self-righteously judged them, maybe even outrightly denied that they existed with no fear whatsoever. How did they do this? I don't know. I don't know exactly what they were doing. We don't need to know what they were doing. We don't. Need to, the specific content isn't really relevant to us. What we do need to know, and what is clear to us, is why the false teachers were so arrogant. That's where Peter spends the bulk of his time. In verse 12, he says they were like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, like many animals are, right? They don't even know what they don't know. Part of their problem is ignorance, but the root of it is arrogance. Sensual desires. They're creatures of instinct. That's important. That is, they acted in accordance with their nature. Creatures of instinct. And they will be destroyed. They'll suffer, in verse 13, for who they are and what they say. And they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They were unashamed of what they were doing. Do you see how he's describing them like animals, like rebellious children even, slaves to their nature who just act out and don't care, right? They're blots and blemishes, unlike those later in Second Peter who have been found to be at the last day without spot or blemish. They are blots and blemishes. They revel in the fact that they're deceiving the people, even while they share in the love feast that the church had for the Lord's Supper, They have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. Notice the words Peter is using. Irrational, instinct, pleasure, revel, insatiable, entice in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They're trained in greed. They're good at it. They're like cursed little children who have forsaken the right way in verse 15 and have gone their own way. And then Peter again recalls the Old Testament or the example of the Old Testament in verses 15 through 17 when he likens the way of the false teachers to the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. The root word of Beor is flesh, which is interesting, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So the false teachers were like Balaam. In Numbers 22 to 24, the Israelites were encamped on the plain of Moab promise or preparing to enter the promised land and then Balak the king of Moab to try and stop the Israelite invasion hires Balaam who is apparently some kind of prophet to curse Israel for him Balaam actually consulted the Lord about what he should do but the text makes clear that he obviously wanted to go his own way it was God himself who had sent Balaam to Balak but he became angry with him and sent the angel of the Lord to block his path if you remember the story, and apparently Balaam's motivation for going was not what it should have been. Balaam could not see the angel on the road in front of him, but the donkey he was riding did see, and he refused to move forward, and the donkey eventually rebukes Balaam, speaks to him in human language. So Balaam is duly chastised. He refused to curse Israel, and to the disappointment of Balak, actually blessed Israel four times. 
but then he would go on to be killed at the hand of the Reubenites when they were fighting to take Moab. The book of Revelation charges Balaam with casting a stumbling block before the children of Israel. He's a prominent negative example all throughout Scripture. Balaam was a prophet for the purpose of making money, of getting gain to fulfill his flesh. And he would use whatever means necessary to get it, whoever the highest bidder was. That's the way that these false teachers follow in Peter's time. Notice the irony here. Balaam, these false teachers are like creatures of instinct. All false teachers are. That's what's driving it. But creatures apparently less able to see God's truth than donkeys are. They've trained their hearts with greed, the text says. Greed defines them and shapes them and what they teach. Listen to Peter's other labels for them. This is an extremely dense little section, and Peter is not happy. They're waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They have nothing substantial inside of them. They're swept away because they have no anchor. They aren't chained down to anything. And the gloom of utter darkness is being reserved for them. They have reservations in hell. But they boast about their folly. They're proud of their lies. And Peter tells us a second time that they entice others in verse 18. Just like verse 14. He tells us that twice. They entice others. They aren't neutral then. They aren't harmless. They entice unsteady souls by capitalizing on the sensual passions of the flesh that are still in those who still live in a world where they're surrounded by wickedness, like we all are. And people that are enslaved to and overcome by the corruption of their own passions have no business promising freedom, in verse 19, to anyone. A person is enslaved to whatever they want the most. That is their master. And the problem with that in the church, there's a specific issue with that in the church, is that some who are enslaved to their own desires are teaching, speaking, drawing others away from where God says their hope is, where life can be found. And in verses 20 through 22, the fate of these false teachers is described again. And if you read it closely, you realize Peter is hearkening back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 15 here. If at one time these false teachers were those who had escaped the defilements of the world, remember how he said it before, the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire in one four. if they had one time escaped that through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then get entangled in them again, come to be controlled by them again, that last state, the state they're back in, under the control of their flesh a second time, is worse than the state of enslavement they were into it before they initially escaped it. So it's one thing to be enslaved to our flesh without ever having known the gospel. It's another thing entirely to be enslaved to the flesh with the full knowledge that you're rejecting the only means of your freedom. Peter says it'd be better for a person to have never known the way, the means to righteousness, than to turn your back on it. When that happens to a person, Proverbs 26.11 is happening to them. It's like a dog who eats what it throws up. Which always makes me laugh when people think you're weird if you don't like dogs. They eat their own throw up, folks. I don't understand that. 
But you can clean up a pig is what he's saying, right? You can clean up a pig. You can use water. You can use Prel. Remember Prel? <laughs> you can use... <laughs> it's the first shampoo that popped in my head is Prel. I don't use it. You can use Bath and Body Works, Juniper Breeze. You can shine a sow up until she looks like something Doolittle Lynn would gladly go out with. Nobody remembers coal miner's daughter. This is Moundsville, West Virginia. Do you remember? Remember when Doolittle Lynn, he went, he took that other woman out and, and Loretta found him, Sissy Spacek found him. Hey, Doolittle Lynn, what you doing with that sow? You remember that? She said, what, what'd she call me? A sow? That's a woman pig. And she slaps him with her purse. I remember that. You, you can clean up a pig the minute the pig is off the leash, it's going back to the mud. Right? So, that's interesting. Even if the outside has been cleaned, if the nature has not been changed, the pig will always act on its instinct. It's what it will always go back to. So, maybe the nature of these false teachers had never actually been changed. But what, uh, what is the word that's characterized them throughout chapter 2? Right? False. False. They're not true. They're condemned. They will be judged. Knowledge is the key word in Second Peter. What sort of knowledge did they really have of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I, I don't know. Now the reason it seems like a new section begins in the middle of verse 10 is because Peter moved from telling them there were false teachers among them and judgment has been reserved for them to telling them now, here's why they do what they do. Right? That's the, that's the shift. Here's what drives these false teachers in the second part of the chapter. And we want to focus a little more closely. Why is that where Peter went? Why did Peter focus on their motivation? Why not give us a more precisely detailed outline of what they were teaching? Wouldn't that be more helpful? I don't think so. And I, 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 because I don't think Peter thought so. If God inspired what is in the Scripture, that means He is also Lord over what isn't in the Scripture. And if the reality is that false teachers will always be among us, and there is no limit to the varieties of false teaching there are, then what would be most beneficial, since the content is always changing and always shifting by what the culture is, then what would be most beneficial to us is to understand what always motivates false teaching to begin with. Because that is where the true danger lies for us. That is where we're vulnerable to being enticed and pulled away. Not mainly by incorrect information, but when the motivation for incorrect information is going to capitalize on what's still broken inside of us. False teaching comes from the desires of the flesh for the things that are not truth. For anything and everything that is not Christ crucified. For anything that is not the gospel. So the main issue for Peter from the outset of this letter is don't leave the gospel. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, don't leave it. But there are clearly two groups of people in this chapter. And the whole letter, again, that he's addressing in the church. They're both in the church. There are people who are constantly on the edge of falling away. 
right? Of being blinded to their salvation and the good that the gospel does for them. And at the same time, there are also false teachers in the church who are agents of their struggle, pushing them to go over the edge, fueling their desire to fall away. And now we begin to see how the theme of Noah and Lot from the first part of chapter 2 are continued here. Remember, Lot was tormented by the wickedness around him, greatly distressed by it. In the church today and always, there are people that are barely hanging on in the middle of torment and may not escape it because of the cursed world they live in. And there are false teachers who speak, who exploit and entice the unsteady souls in the church that are tormented and distressed by the evil around them, by the sinful desires that still remain inside of them. False teachers are instigators of that. Again, we don't talk about that. What we talk about is, this is a wrong teaching, and let's talk about it and learn it and memorize it and figure it out. They're the instigators of falling away. They lead other people astray. Again, not because part of the church is just too dense to understand what truth is. That's not the case. That's The truth is deliberately simple, beloved. Right. The, the problem is, false teachers pick up on why we think the way we think. They exploit and entice the unsteady souls in the church that are tormented and distressed by what's outside of them, by what's inside of them. They instigate, they lead others astray. That's taking place all the way through the text here. That's Peter's concern. Remember chapter 1, verse 8. If these qualities, remember this now, if these qualities that you should have because you've been set free from having to achieve your own righteousness, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking to his listeners here in chapter 2. He's saying, don't get to the point these false teachers have obviously gotten to where you lack these qualities and forget that you were cleansed. Don't get there. Don't stop believing the gospel to the point that you forget you've been cleansed. Don't become nearsighted. Don't let the inside be the only place you look. Be all the more diligent to remember your salvation. To remember that you've already been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter is not saying here, now, the false teachers believe you can commit adultery all that you want to and still call yourself a Christian. Right? As though the problem with false teachers is that they're too loose on grace and they're not tight enough on the law. You know, there's not enough balance. One of my favorite unbiblical words. There's not enough balance. But there's no way Peter is speaking about the dangers of too much freedom through grace and the gospel. Because he's already said that grace and the gospel are the very things that provide escape from corruption. He's been very clear about this. We already have in the gospel, in the promises. And the promises are the link in chapter 1 verse 4 to all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have all things because we have those promises. We have everything we need to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, the law doesn't do that. 
Imperatives don't do that. We don't need imperatives to accomplish that for us. They can't. They never will. The law cannot produce what the law requires. Only grace, the gospel, the promises can do that. That's the first thing Peter laid out in his letter before he ever got to this place. The answer is never to focus more on trying to obey the law. So the defense here is not for believers. They need a heavy dose of the law about the fact that adultery and sensuality are sinful. They need reminded of that. That would clean them up. They know that. We all know that. That's written on our hearts. We know that. The issue, whether you're righteous lot, or you're sitting under the teaching of a false teacher, or you're a false teacher, the issue is you have to have the gospel. Don't leave the gospel. The warning stands. Verse 20 is not about whether a Christian can lose their salvation. That's not what this text is telling me. It tells me not to leave the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do that. Don't give up Jesus because if you do, the last state will be worse than the first. That's a statement of fact. The state of your life, if you come to believe the gospel and then reject its saving power, will be way worse than life before you believed it. Don't do that. And don't follow those who have done that, is what Peter is saying. Yeah, I mean, Peter's difficult here. This is difficult to understand, to make sense of. Jesus never rounded off the edges of what he said. Jesus didn't nuance very much at all. I, I, and off the top of my head, I can't think of a time that Jesus said, Now, I want to be clear here, just in case you misunderstand me. I can't think of many times that Jesus did that. He just left things hanging in the air. Life was at stake when Jesus spoke. Life was at stake. Not whether or not you'd be a good girl or a good boy today. That's not what was at stake when Jesus was talking. Life was at stake when Jesus was talking. Peter, in the tradition of his master, is not rounding off the edges here and nuancing it to death. The point of the text is not a systematic theology discussion about whether one can lose his or her salvation. The point of the text is don't leave the gospel because that's what's at stake. Don't leave it. And so often in the church, it's as though the only thing at stake when we preach is whether or not you'll cuss today. You know, whether or not you'll love your phone more than you love Jesus or love golf more than you love Jesus. Peter talked like what was at stake every moment is whether or not you believed chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. That's how these guys talk. Here's what's at stake. Whether or not people will believe the gospel. Whether or not you really believed that the only thing you have is Jesus. What's at stake here is absolute faith in Jesus Christ for everything versus literally everything or anything else. That's what's at stake. Jesus didn't nuance. Don't worry about what you should wear. Okay, I just just go around naked all the time. Like, what do you mean? Don't worry about food. I, how, I have to eat to survive. And there's no there's no qualification there. Don't worry about it. He just left things out there. See, we don't like that. We don't like that. We like things to be nice and tidy, doable, controllable. 
And Jesus said things and just left them out there so that you and I could never get comfortable in the world with our imagined progress. The things Jesus says are a burr. Don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about food. That's a burr in my saddle. How do I go about life without caring about food and clothing? I guess I just really need Jesus then because nothing else makes sense. There we go. There we go. It's only the gospel that enables us to just live and have any kind of sanity in the midst of the world. The, the only way you cannot worry about what you'll wear or what you'll eat, for example, is if the gospel is really true. So if we're going to obey Jesus, we need as much gospel as we can get. The demons know who Jesus is. They know what's false and what's true. They know it very clearly. They know the difference between right and wrong. False teachers knew it, at least to some degree. But unless mere knowledge is replaced with faith, we aren't making it out alive. They're doomed. False teachers are condemned in that state. The gospel is knowledge that must be believed all the time. It would be worse in the end to know it and then reject it and go back to something else. Again, Peter's point is not to answer the question, now were these guys really Christians? Peter's point is we had better be chained to the rock, to the cornerstone, or we will lose our souls. I don't know if we all believe that or not. We, I think we assume belief. We assume it so often. What gives false teaching its power, though? Who can false teachers entice? They entice unsteady souls. Unsteady. The places where you're shifting, where you're fearful, where we don't really know what to do, where we still feel a pull towards the world, those desires that we have for a perfect spouse or perfect kids or a better job or more money or whatever it is, that's where false teaching zeroes in. All the places were unsteady. All the places were shaking. You see, Peter's purpose in this letter is to make us steady so that we can't be enticed. Right? And Peter is saying, you don't do that by going to school and taking classes on good theology versus bad theology. That ultimately won't do it. Right? My seminary degrees mean nothing. They mean nothing. Because my heart is still twisted, right? They entice unsteady souls. So the point of this letter is to make us steady souls. Did the false teachers depart from the faith because they were too loose on the law? No. Because they weren't strong enough on what sin is? Is it because their systematic theology wasn't extensive enough? No. They departed from the faith because they did not fix their minds on the only thing that provides escape from corruption. God's precious and very great promises, which are all yes and amen in Christ. Don't leave this. Don't leave it. Don't ever leave it. There will always be teachers driven by their own desires for how things should be 
or how they want them to be, trying to entice you and I to follow them. Beloved, it is through the gospel we come to best understand what is false and what is true. And any time you're listening to a teaching that soothes the sinful desires you already have, run from it fast. Run from it. Don't ever try to convince yourself that you don't need continual, perpetual faith in the gospel. Don't ever be comfortable with any teaching, any study, at the big level or the small level, whose goal and point is not, so believe the gospel, it's all you have. Don't trust anything or anyone when that's not the point. Full stop. Stay chained to the rock. Stay chained to the rock. Don't ever leave the gospel. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ speaks over you and I this morning, believer. It has been, it is, and always will be louder than the voice of the accuser. It is louder than the voice of my flesh. The only reason I stand here today in front of you, a preacher, is because the power of Jesus to keep me is stronger than my power to walk away. Yeah. Don't leave it. Don't plug your ears to it. Don't cover your soul. Don't cover your mind. Keep listening. Keep believing. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. The fight is faith in Jesus Christ for salvation versus literally everything else. That's where the fight is. That's where the fight is going to stay. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get fooled. Don't ever leave the gospel. If, if, if you walk away from this morning saying, how many times could he say, don't ever leave the gospel, then I succeeded. Don't leave it. And listen, sinners plunged beneath the flood of Jesus' cleansing blood this morning are saved, and they will be kept. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. He's ours for the taking this morning. We need only believe. Confess your sins. He knows all of them anyway. Be forgiven of them. Be cleansed. Be made whole. The front will be open as we sing in just a moment. If you want to join our church and link arms with us as we try to look to Christ alone for everything, now is the time for you to come as well. Believe in Jesus. Don't leave the gospel. Don't leave it. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, I thank you that you save and keep. Your hands, your grip, your promise, your power, your will are our only hope. 
And to the degree that we don't believe that or want to nuance it or question it, we are open to the lure of false teaching. Lord, teach us where to engage. Teach us how to think, Father. Teach your people how to think of reality in light of the gospel. I pray for those in this room this morning that believe in you, that you would strengthen their faith and deepen their hope and sustain and embed their peace. And Father, I pray for those in this room that do not believe in your Son for salvation in this moment, that, Lord, you would bring them to life and enable them to come. Lord, would you have your way with all of us, Father. We need you. We need you in every way conceivable. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.